Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Our classic preacher from the past is Dr. Bob Kelly. Dr. Kelly was changed forever, but at the age of 19, he was miraculously saved. He was a football player and he loved playing football, but once he was saved and God called him to the ministry, he went to Tennessee Temple University and was trained under the ministry of Dr. Lee Robertson. Upon graduation, he took a pastorate in West Virginia, but eventually settled at Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1969. He led Franklin Road through building projects and established a Christian school. He even had two devastating fires and helped the church through that disaster. While serving the Lord in evangelism in the mid-1970s, Pastor Kelly earned the nickname Machine Gun Kelly. A fellow preacher once said he could preach more in 25 minutes than most men could in an hour. Long be remembered also for his work with young preacher boys whom he called his Timothy Club. He had a burden to see young men grow into faithful servants of God. Dr. Kelly was married to his beloved Mrs. April. For many of these years together, Bob cared for his wife as she battled multiple sclerosis. That hardship power could never dampen his love for his wife or his God. In 1991, Dr. Kelly became the pastor of Grace Baptist Church, West Columbia, South Carolina, where he served until his death in 2006. On October uh, 28th of that year, after a short battle with terminal illness, he went into glory, serving God for 43 faithful years. Pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Verse 18, the Bible says it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. Let's bow in prayer just for a moment, can we please? Tonight I'm preaching on what happens when a believer sins. Now, Father, open our hearts tonight to the precious Word of God. I pray, dear Father, tonight that I might preach this sermon as though it would be my last. I pray that I might preach with compassion and with burden, and yes, Lord, with the fullness and power and anointing of the Spirit of God. Oh, God, do a work in our hearts, something we will remember, something we'll treasure. I pray all the work done this evening will be effectual. Deal with each one of us tonight. I plead the blood of Jesus upon sin. I rebuke the devil. And I pray, O oh God, as I preach tonight, that the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world will be glorified. Now speak to our hearts. We sit at your feet. We wait upon the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the one thing we remember most about the man David when we survey his life? 
when we see that life in its entirety, when we see the full scope of his days on this earth, what is the one thing we remember most about the man? I'm sure someone here tonight would say, well, Brother Kelly, I think the thing I remember most about David is that he was a man of courage, and he was. Do you remember that day when he walked into the valley of Elah? The Bible says when he walked out of that valley, he had the head of a giant in his hands. Do you remember that day when he was tending his father's sheep on the backside of the wilderness? The Bible says a bear attacked, and David ripped that bear with his own hands. Oh, yes, David was a man of bone-chilling daring, a man of deep courage, but I submit to you, this is not the thing we remember most about him. Now, I'm sure there may be someone else here tonight who'd say, well, Brother Kelly, I think the thing I remember most about David is that he was a man king of all Israel, and he was. He knew the pomp and pageantry of kingship. You remember that day when he rode into the city after the battle of the Philistines? The Bible says the people began to cry, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Oh, yes, he was a king in every sense of the word. But I say to you, this is not the thing I believe you and I remember most about the man. Now, I'm sure there are others here tonight who might say, well, Brother Kelly, I think the thing I remember most about David is that he was the sweet psalmist, and he was. Oh, how we love the Psalms. It was David who wrote, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. It was David who wrote, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. It was David who wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Yes, he was the sweet psalmist. We remember him for those psalms. We read them every morning. But I say to you, that is not the thing I believe that we remember most about David. Now hear me and hear me well, and I pray the Spirit of God will write it on our hearts tonight. I submit to you, as long as the story of David is told, as long as little boys and girls sing Little David Play on Your Heart, as long as daddies teach that story on the heart, I say to you that one thing we'll never forget about David, the one thing we'll never eradicate from our minds and wipe from our memory is the fact that David committed one of the most heinous, wicked, dirty, filthy, ugly, vile, putrefying sins in all the Bible. And here we have that sin vividly depicted for us. Nathan, the Old Testament prophet, walks into the presence of the king. He takes that prophetic finger, shoves it under the nose of David, and says, David, you're a wicked man. You've committed a twofold iniquity. Number one, David, you're a scarlet man. You've gone to bed with Bathsheba and committed crimson adultery. But that's not all, David. You're a murderer. You've killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now stop, and I pray we'll change gears. And I want God to do something for us tonight as we think on this theme. I submit to you when David committed that sin with Bathsheba, he was very definitely a born-again child of God. I believe with all my heart when he committed these wicked sins, he was a believer. He knew Jesus Christ. He had been saved. He had looked down the corridor of time, and he had received his New Testament Messiah. I believe that David lived in our day. Everyone would have called him a Christian. Now, I've got a question tonight. What happens when a Christian sins? What happens when a child of God transgresses the law? What happens when a believer lowers the barrier and sin prevails in the life? You say, Brother Kelly, what are you preaching on that theme for tonight? Wait a minute. Hear me and hear me well. Brothers, I travel around America, and as I see fundamental churches today, I believe with all my soul, more and more, we're becoming insensitive to sin. Sin doesn't bother us anymore. Come on now, sin doesn't really break our hearts anymore. I find very few Christians weeping at old-fashioned altars. Man, we've gotten used to sin. It's vogue, it's the end thing, it's the trend of the day. It's just the world we live in. We've accepted playboys in our grocery stores. You know it's the truth. 
We've accepted, come on, booze as a way of life. We've accepted drugs as just a part of our day and a part of our life, and it just doesn't bother us anymore. We can watch filthy, ungodly TV programs, and we sit there and say, well, we've got one. We might as well watch it. God help your heart. Uh, God help your life. May he speak to you tonight. May he speak to me. If we're ever going to have revival in our churches and the power of God on our lives, we've got to come back to a New Testament definition of sin. We've got to see exactly what God says about it. We've got to see it for the sewer that it is. We've got to see it for the deranger and the spot and blot that it is on our character. We've got to see what God says about it. Now, I'm praying tonight that through this message, sin is going to become exceedingly sinful. I trust the Spirit of God is going to show us why we ought to be sensitive to this matter of sin in our life. I think there's several things that happen in a believer's life when he sins. We're going to see a digression tonight. We're going to see a progression in the life of a believer when sin comes into his life. Take these thoughts down, would you? First of all, I say to you, when sin comes into the life of the believer, immediately, spontaneously, instantaneously, his fellowship with God is definitely broken. Understand me. I did not say that the believer loses his salvation. You mean, Brother Kelly, you're one of those old once saved, always saved preachers? You bet I am. Because my Lord Jesus was a once saved, always saved preacher. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, Once we are in the hand of the Father, no man on this earth, no imp of hell, can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Paul the Apostle was a once saved, always saved preacher. There is therefore now, present tense, no condemnation, no judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus. Jude was a once saved, always say preacher now unto him who is able to keep you from falling no my friends i can't lose my salvation it's as eternal as jesus christ is himself i have the wonderful seal of my salvation the blessed holy spirit living in my breast i have the new nature of jesus christ and i say to you i am eternally secure in him thank god i can't lose it and if you're saved tonight you can't lose it but wait just a minute there is something we can lose, something dear, something that I treasure more than life and breath itself. You say, Brother Kelly, what is it? Oh, we can lose our communication with heaven. We can lose our awareness of the presence of Jesus Christ in our life. We can lose our consciousness of his sweet fellowship. Hey, wait a minute. We can lose our effectiveness. We can lose our influence. We can lose our salt, if you please. I'm saying to you tonight, the sweetest thing any child of God can lose is the smile of his heavenly Father upon his life. And as I check Christians across America, it breaks my heart to find that there's so many Christians in our local churches that are content to live without the beauty and blessing of their Father upon their lives. You know, I believe there are people here tonight, excuse me, I believe there are folk here tonight, boy, when you used to read the Word, hey, it was like manna from heaven. Those lessons jumped out at you. It's like the lessons of the Word of God were in three dimensions, and they just stood out, and you loved them, and you held this book dear to your heart. But now when you read it, it's nothing more than paper and ink. It doesn't speak anymore. There are no lessons in it for you. You say, Brother Kelly, what's wrong with me? Somewhere along the line, your fellowship with God has been broken. Put it down, my friend. Hey, there were days when you used to have that prayer list and you used to check off the answers and you were so excited how God was answering prayer in your life. But now when you get down to pray, it's as though the heavens are brass 
and God's a million miles away over in some corner of heaven and he doesn't even really know you exist and you try to get through and you knock on the door and oh my, nothing happens in your prayer life. You say, Brother Kelly, what in the world's wrong with me? Somewhere along the line, your fellowship with God has been broken. It breaks my heart tonight that there's so many Christians, come on, that sit in the pews of our church like barren fig trees and broken cisterns, lighthouses with no light, witnesses with no witness. I mean, hear me tonight, cold, barren, dearth in their lives, and yet they go on and on and on and persist in it and never seek the victory that Jesus Christ can give. I remember one night about 12 midnight in Charleston, West Virginia, when I pastored there right out of seminary. I went to Tennessee Temple years ago. My first church was in Charleston, West Virginia. Pastored there two years. About 12 midnight one night, my doorbell rang. I immediately got up, ran to the doorbell. I didn't know what was wrong. I thought maybe there was some tragedy, something had happened. There was a young lad standing at the door, big old crocodile tears rolling down his face. My his heart was broken. And I said, oh, man, what's wrong with you? And we began talking about his life. I won't give you his name. Someone could know it. I preach a lot of places. I hate to mention names like that in the pulpit. But let me just say, the boy was a member of my church, a saved boy, a born-again young man. His mother was a child of God and a good woman. He walked into my front room, and we sat down on the couch, and he told me that story I've heard a million times before. How he had ruined and wrecked another young lady's life and how he had gone the primrose path and lost his victory. And I remember we sat there on the couch and he told me that lewd, sordid story. My heart was broken. Immediately I began to point him to 1 John 1, 9, Ephesians 1, 7, Isaiah chapter 55, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So many verses on this matter of forgiveness. And thank God he found the land the beginning again. And there was a sweet forgiveness. And the fountain filled with blood did its work that night. It was precious. And I saw that young man come back to God. But wait a minute. Before he left my house, I asked him a question. I said, Bobby, I said, let me ask you a question, fella. I said, do you remember when all these problems started in your life? He said, preacher, I sure do. He said, I remember there was a day when I permitted a certain sin to come into my life, and he told me the sin. He said, Brother Kelly, I permitted that sin to come into my life. He said, I didn't deal with it. He said, I didn't pray over it. He said, I didn't weep over it. He said, Preacher, from that day, I began to pile one sin on top of another sin, on top of another sin, on top of another sin until my sins were a high mountain. He said, I couldn't cope with them anymore. And he said, I finally found myself in the gutter. Wait a minute. I believe if I could bring King David back and let him stand behind this pulpit tonight, I believe if he could tell you the truth of that wicked sin in his life, I believe he'd say, oh, wait a minute. It didn't start that night on the rooftop. It started months and even years before. I began to think this evil thought and that evil thought and that evil thought. He said, I began to pile one sin on top of another sin until finally that night on the roof, sin had its perfect work and I fell. I like what Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said. He said, every great moral catastrophe is always preceded by a series of tolerations of sin. I believe he's right, folk. First of all, I say to you, when sin comes in, fellowship with God is broken. Number two, put it down. When sin comes into the life of the believer, the temple of God is definitely defiled. I want you to see a beautiful picture here. I think one of the best ways to study your Bible is to study it in contrast. I want us to study the two main characters of 2 Samuel 12. First of all, let's look at Nathan. Now, if I'm right about Nathan, he probably had on a pair of sandals. He may have had on a lowly tunic. I'm not sure. He probably had in his hand a staff. 
He was a backwoods preacher, a fundamental preacher in his day, I'm sure, highly conservative, a man of God. Now, I see him walking into the presence of the king. Now, David, I'm sure, was sitting there on a multi-jewel throne. He probably had on his head a beautiful golden crown. He had in his hand the scepter of righteousness. Maybe he had on a purple robe. Now, I want you to contrast these two men. Here's the preacher standing nose to nose with the king. Listen to me. I submit to you, you'll never see a more beautiful picture of courage in all the Word of God. Brother, when old Nathan stood there in front of David, he didn't talk about the weather, and he didn't talk about the big fish that he caught last week. Come on now. And he didn't talk about the football game or the baseball game. He didn't tiptoe through the tulips with his tack. Oh, no, no. He got right down to business. He said, David, you've sinned, and thank God he defined David's sin. Now listen to me. What we need in America today is a band of preachers who will quit preaching around sin and preach on sin. And name it. And Nathan named it. Now I've got an application I want to make. If you're saved tonight, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, listen to me. You've got a greater preacher than Nathan living right in your breast. Huh? You've got a greater preacher than Paul, who stood at Peter, who stood at Pentecost. 3,000 people were swept into the kingdom of God. You've got a greater preacher than Paul, who stood on Mars Hill, and the city of Athens, Greece, was moved. You've got a greater preacher tonight. Listen to me. You've got a greater preacher tonight than Stephen, who stood before that Sanhedrin and preached with such power that they gnashed on him with their teeth. You say, Brother Kelly, who is that preacher? Oh, you know who he is. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Spirit of God? Now wait just a minute. Get hold of that tonight. That same one who moved upon the face of the waters in Genesis 1 is in you. That same one who moved upon Gideon's 300 mighty men is in you. That same one who moved upon Samson, he slew a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass. That same one is in you. That same one who moved upon the cold, damp, barren tomb of Jesus Christ and brought him out triumphant over the grave. That same one is in you. Now, wait a minute. If I've got the Spirit of God, deity, divinity living in me, then bless God, that makes my body highly important in the economy and plan of God. If I've got the Holy Spirit in me, I've got to watch what I take off my body. Amen? If I've got the Holy Spirit in me, I've got to watch what I put on my body. If I've got the Holy Spirit in me, I've got to watch what goes out of my body. If I've got the Holy Spirit in me, I've got to watch what comes into my body. Listen to me tonight, folk. I say this very cautiously and carefully. I don't know all the answers to the sin unto death. I've read some. I've studied some. I've tried to make this analogy and that analogy. But if I know anything about the sin unto death tonight, I promise you somewhere there is a divine connection between the desecration of the human body, come on now, and the sin unto death. I don't know all the answers, but it has something to do with the defilement of the temple or dwelling place of the Spirit of God. I remember one day I was up preaching in Athens, Tennessee. A young lady stepped out of her place. She was a beautiful girl, about 17, 18 years of age. Thank God that morning, she got right with God. Never forget what she told her preacher. She said, Preacher, I'm in trouble. The very next day, we went to her home to visit. Her mother got saved that Sunday, and her daddy got saved that night. And the next day, we went to the home to visit. Knocked on the front door. No one came to the door. 
I knew they were there because the car was in the driveway, went to the side door, knocked on the door. The little mother came to the door, just a little short lady. Never forget what she looked like. But I didn't, listen to this, I didn't talk to her very long. I just looked at her for a few moments because I saw something else. I didn't really see the kitchen to the right, didn't really see the bedroom to the left. I saw something else right over that mother's shoulder. Now listen to this. That girl that came down that aisle on that Sunday said she was a born-again child of God. She said she was saved. But here on the back wall of a bedroom in the back was a huge life-size photograph of that girl in a very nudish, skimpy, majorette costume. And here be a young person. Tonight I mean this with all my heart. I didn't hear an audible voice. But something inside of me said, look at that preacher. That's why that young lady got in trouble she dealt lightly with the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, and you can't do that and get by. One day I was reading the Old Testament, and I was just trying to develop some thoughts on the Old Testament tabernacle. And I noticed there that the Word of God said around that tabernacle there were ten curtains of goat's hair and eleven curtains of blue linen. And I said, now, dear Lord, what is the teaching of the coverings of the tabernacle? He said, well, boy, here's the answer to it. He said, look, in the Old Testament, that tabernacle was the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God. Then I began to put two and two together. I said to myself, where is the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God today? <laughs> it's in the body of the, of the child of God, the Holy Spirit on this earth. And thank God he wants that dwelling place to be well covered. But then number three, let's go on. First of all, fellowship with God is broken. Temple of God is defiled. Now we come to a related lesson. Since the temple of God is defiled, the Holy Spirit's person is grieved. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture that I think has been grossly misinterpreted today. I want to share with you what my thoughts are on it. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. We'll take but a minute, but I want you to see this. Man, we've read it time after time, but I don't believe that we have correctly interpreted this passage. Look at verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. And grieve not, the word grieve here is lupeo. It means to stab, it means to wound, it means to inflict with sorrow. Now watch this. And grieve not, or stab not, or wound not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Psychologists tell us that there are three kinds of people in the world. First of all, they're introverts. These are people that are very shy, very quiet, very timid. And then they're ambiverts. These are folk that are well-balanced, right in between, not too loud, not too quiet, just right. I've often wanted to be one of those. And then psychologists tell us that they're extroverts. Down where we live, that means loud mouth. I remember when I used to go to Tennessee Temple years ago, I'd sit in chapel and I'd hear men of God stand in the pulpit, soft Bible teachers. Dr. Layman Strauss, for instance, are some of those men. They stand in the pulpit very softly, very quietly, very suavely, wouldn't move a muscle, just stand there and the Word of God would flow, never lift their voice. And I'd sit out there and I'd say, Lord, I sure wish I could preach like them. And I'd go out into different chapels and churches and the jails and I'd try to preach like them and I'd fall right on my face. Just couldn't do it. I finally had to learn that God could use a loud mouth. Now let's play like tonight that we're all at a party and we're discussing what everybody else is discussing. What in the world is Reagan going to do with this mess? We've got a mess. 
What's he going to do about Russia? What's he going to do about the arms situation? What's he going to do about inflation? What's he going to do about all the economic problems? What's he going to do about pornography and abortion and all the rest? Now, wait a minute. And at our party, everybody begins to give their answer. Boy, the pastor stands. He says, if Reagan would do this, solve all our problems. The deacon stand. Oh, if Reagan would do this, it'd solve all our problems. Come on, and one by one, these preachers stand. If Reagan would just do this, it'd solve all our problems. Now, watch. Have you ever learned that an extrovert thinks he knows everything? So I save my answer to last. I just kind of build up my wisdom, boy, and I've really got the answer. Now watch. Now I shoot my hand in the air and I say, look, everybody, it's so Kelly. I've got the answer, boy. Just listen to me. If Reagan would do this, it'd solve all our problems. But when I raise my hand, everybody just ignores me. Or they act as if I'm not even there. And my feelings are hurt do you know that's what this verse means we grieve the spirit of god when we ignore his presence and his feelings are hurt let me understand what i mean stay with me for a moment here's a young lad coming home tomorrow from school he has to pass the drugstore and i'm using me as an illustration this is what i used to do he walks in the drugstore boy he's going to get him a cherry coke do they still sell cherry cokes Fountain cherry coke, man, I love those. But anyway, he's going to get him a coke. He walks into the drugstore. Out of the left eye, he sees the soda fountain and the cherry coke and the soda jerk. Now, but out of his right eye, he sees the magazine rack and right on the front's a Playboy. Now, this young man's saved. And boy, he experiences what every Christian experiences. The war begins, the conflict rages. The Spirit of God says, get your coke and get out. But the lust of the flesh says, no, no, you go look at the playboy and the war's on, boy, and the bullets are flying. The flesh is saying, get the playboy. The spirit's saying, get the coke and get out. The flesh wins. He walks over to the playboy, takes the playboy down. He begins to feed on the filth, and folks, that's exactly what it is. First-class garbage, sewage, and you're a fool if you ever look at it. And that boy begins to feed on that filth. Now, wait a minute. But suddenly something inside of him says, put it back. It'll destroy you. It'll derange your mind. It'll ruin you. Instead of listening to the voice, the boy just continues to feed on filth. Guess what he just did? He just grieved the Spirit of God. Yeah. Here are two ladies on the phone tomorrow, the members of this church. <laughs> you hear old Kelly preach last night? Boy, I've heard better preaching than that on a stump. I'm not going back. He's just too pointed, too bold. Says it too sharply. Suddenly the Spirit of God says to that lady, no, he's trying to do what God wanted him to do. He did the best he could. He loves you. He's trying to help you. But instead of listening to the voice, she turns off the voice, and guess what? She just grieved the Spirit of God. Every time you sin, you have to trample underfoot the Spirit of God because he's going to warn you not to do it. And every time you disobey his warning, you have literally stabbed the very soul of the Spirit of God with grief. And if you're saved tonight, you've got that voice in your breast. Then number four. First of all, fellowship with God is broken. Holy Spirit's grieved. Temple of God's defiled. But then number four, and boy, here's a biggie. 
I say to you, we walk into the realm of what the Bible calls the stumbling block. Would you turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 just a moment? I want to show you something that God used in my life. It just reached out and grabbed me and shook me real good one day. And I want to share it with you, can I? We become stumbling blocks to others. What in the world is a stumbling block? And is there a good biblical illustration of this? You bet. One of the best illustrations you'll find in the Bible is 2 Samuel 12. Let me show you what I mean. Now in verse 13, David replies to Nathan. Notice what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. Now watch. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Now watch this, folks. Evidently, in God's working with us as believers, he gives us space or time to repent. If we do not repent within that time limit, then we must reap that sin in the body of our flesh. Now wait just a minute. Evidently, David had gone over the time barrier. His sin was forgiven, but he went into the area of reaping. Watch. Look at verse 14. How be it? That's the biggest how be it in the Bible. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born of thee shall surely die. What does it mean to give the enemies of God a chance to blaspheme? Look at me. When David committed his sin, he sat on the throne of Israel, right smack dab in the middle of a group of people whose corporate name was Canaanites. They had family names. Watch them. Gibeonites, Amalekites, Ammonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Amalekites, all the ites and tights. He sat right in the middle of them. Now watch this. Boy, old David, when he sat on that throne, he preached one god. He was a monotheist. All those Canaanites were pagan. They either worshipped Baal or Moloch, one of the other multiplicity of gods. They were polytheists. Watch. David, when he sat on that throne as a monotheist, said there's one God and only one. Jehovah is his name, and if you're going to see him, you've got to have clean hands and a pure heart. I want to ask you a question. What do you think those pagan Canaanites did when David went to bed with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah? Did you like a visual aid? <laughs> yeah, David, clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah, David, monotheism, one God and only one, Jehovah. You phony, you hypocrite, come on, you masquerader, you pretender. Yeah, David, you preach a big lip sermon, but you don't have much life in your sermons. And brother, they left him off his throne, and I just wonder how many people fell into hell because of the weak, anemic testimony of King David. Application, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2. Ye are the epistles known and read of all men. Somebody's looking at you. Someone's watching you. And oh, God help us tonight. Here's where we fail. We must live an immaculate testimony before sinners or those that are without. Good illustration. I was up in Williamson, West Virginia for a revival meeting one time. Dan Swan was the pastor there, and old Dan's dead now. Died of a heart attack. Dan and I went to a home of a miner. Knocked on the door. The miner came to the door. Kind of laughed at us because he knew we were the preachers, and he knew I was there for a revival. And he said, what do you guys want here? Ha, ha. I said, sir, we just came to talk to you about Christ. We went in, sat down. I took the fellow through the Roman road. He laughed at me. He said, Preacher, 
I'm young. I've got a lot of living to do. Not time for it. Not, no, no time for that now. The pastor took his turn. If I remember correctly, he took him down John's highway to heaven, begged him to be saved. The man said, no, not today, preacher. I hadn't really noticed her. But standing right over here beside us was his little wife, a member of Brother Swan's church, a little short lady, blonde-haired girl. Hadn't noticed her at all. Boy, when I got through and when Dan Swan got through, she dived at her husband's feet. I mean, she took about two or three big old giant leaps, dived at his feet, buried his feet in her face and hands and began to weep like I've never seen a woman weep. I mean, just openly, profusely weeping. And she said something that moved my heart because I knew when she said it, boy, the countenance on that man's face changed. She said, honey, if you'll get saved today, I'll do anything you want me to do. The whole room changed. The atmosphere was different. And then she said it. She said, honey, and don't turn me off, please. She said, if you get saved today, I'll even quit my smoking. The man was saved within five minutes. One or two years, about one and a half years later, he became the Sunday school superintendent. You say, Brother Kelly, what did it? Let me tell you what did it. When the Surgeon General came out with his report that smoking would kill you at 10 weeks, and by the way, preachers don't have to preach on that too hard today. The Surgeon General's done a pretty good job. Watch me. When he came out with his report, 10 reasons smoking will kill you, that unsaved miner threw his cigarettes down, said, I'll never touch them again, stomped them, but the little wife kept hers, save woman. She kept hers. And she continued to puff them. And you know what that wicked old sinner would do? He'd walk through the house. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah, you're saved and I can quit them and you can't. Why, you're a church member and you've been baptized and <clears throat> you, you can't quit yours and I quit mine. <laughs> he had a tremendous point. If there is a sinner in this community that's more moral than you are, bless God, there's a mourner's bench down here for you tonight. There shouldn't be a cleaner man in town than the born-again Christian. Number four, this number five, number three, very simple thought. And please, don't close your Bibles. I've got one thought I want to drive home. If we go past God's time of dealing with sin, according to the Scriptures, God's time of mercy, God's time of grace and forgiveness, then the sin must be reaped. You say, now, Brother Kelly, I know what you're going to use. You're going to go use Galatians 6, 7, 8. No, no, not going to use that one. Oh, preacher, you're going to use tonight Numbers chapter uh, 32, verse 22. No, I'm not going to use that one. I'm going to use the one we use every day, 1 John 1, 9. Would you like to see how the average Christian uses 1 John 1, 9? Watch this now. Boy, he gets up in the morning, goes out, he sins with his eyes. Come on, all day long he looks at things he shouldn't look at, says things he shouldn't say. All day long the sins just keep flowing into his life. He comes home. Now watch this. Right before bed, he gets down beside his bed and he goes into the confessional booth like a good Catholic. Come on now. Dear Lord, I did this today. First John 1, 9. Good night, Lord. No grief. No guilt. No feelings of hurt in the soul. No tears, nothing. Gets up the next day, goes through the same old ritual, same sins over and over and over again, gets home that night, jumps, in, jumps into the confessional booth again. First John 1, 9, Lord did this, I did this, did that. You know, boy, good night, Lord, sleep like a log. There's only one thing wrong with that kind of dealing with First John 1, 9. You haven't compared Scripture with Scripture. Proverbs 28, 13. Don't turn. 
whoso confesseth, 1 John 1, 9, and forsaketh sin, and that does not mean that you're going to forsake them all. I am not preaching sinless perfection, but bless God, there can be an attitude of wanting to forsake them all. And if I know our Father tonight, I know He looks upon the heart. Brother, you hear me. I don't believe God Almighty ever forgives a sin that there's not a right attitude in the heart about it. You don't come to God like a radio and turn him on and off when you want to. Or put a nickel in a machine and he comes and you got his presence automatically. Excuse me. We've used that escape hatch long enough. And that conscience salver long enough. Let me illustrate what I'm saying and I close. Let's say that this Sunday morning one of the preachers here, this little boy comes to him. He has on a beautiful pair of little white shoes and white pants and a beautiful blue blazer, and he's ready for Sunday school. It rained last night. He says, Dad, he says, can I go out and play a little bit? He said, no, son, you're getting muddy and dirty. He said, oh, look, he said, I'll just sit on the steps. Will you let me do that? He says, well, son, okay. I said, and the preacher says, don't get in the mud. The little boy goes out and does what boys do, and he ought to get what boys get. And he comes in. And he's got mud on his shoes and mud on his pants, and Daddy gives him a good blistering. He looks up and he says, Daddy, Mama, will you forgive me? And Daddy and Mama said, Oh, yes, we'll forgive you. But let me ask you a question. Is he clean? Not until Mommy takes him in the washroom and gets the washcloth and washes the pants and washes the shoes. And folks, let me tell you something. It's the sovereign God of heaven who does the washing. Can I say that to you tonight? It's him who does the washing. And he's going to wash you when you meet his conditions. Amen. You know, I'm afraid that that's why we don't have revival in our churches. We're walking around on the crutch of 1 John 1, 9 and we're not really thoroughly dealing with our sins. Excuse me. Let's bow in prayer. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to the Baptist Pulpit.